for two reasons. One, I haven't finished it. Uh, and second is because the language in the book is incredibly raw and coarse and dark, not uh, out of a, um, sort of a flagrant or um, just casual use, but because it records the words actually spoken in some family settings that the author is recalling. The book is called Hillbilly Elegy. Have y'all heard of that? Anybody heard of that? Raise your hand if you heard of it at all. All right, there's one. <laughs> and Landon, I told Landon about it. You should have raised your hand. There have been two. <laughs> it's the number one book on the New York Times bestseller list. So it's out there, and it's very interesting. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. I do want to say it's a, a not-for-children book, um, and the language is very, very coarse, very uh, raw quotes of reality, but it's about life, and it's a man telling the story of his hillbilly heritage. He is a Yale graduate, and he's laying out what he went through. I said that to tell you this. Last night, at, it was probably 1 o'clock. I couldn't put this book down. It's just been captivating me. First, because it's a great, well-told story. Second, my mom could have written it. It is a very similar story of my family tree. I sent a note to my brothers and my sister and said, hey, y'all ought to read this book. And they all replied, why should we read that? And I said, because our family could have written it. Um, it's, it's scary, but it's, uh, last night I did something that I've only done a few times in my life. And that is I wept so hard that it was uncontrolled. Just, you know what I'm talking about when you, when you finally break and there's, <laughs> there's nobody or nothing stopping what's coming out. It's like vomiting its own. And it's just out there. And it was 1 o'clock, and I was really afraid that I was going to wake Sherry up. And uh, I didn't, thank God, but I just heaved. I just wept, and it, it just is coming back now. I'm trying to hold it in. But the thing that made me weep was sort of a, a little bit of a spoiler for the book, but not really, uh, just a, a piece of the, the work of the book. But there's this moment in the midst of this craziness in family dynamics that you'll would just have to read the book or have experienced it to know what I'm talking about. But there's this just moment in the craziness of family dynamics where this young boy, the writer of the book, looks at his grandmother and says these words, does God really love us? You know, I, I grew up in a family where that was never a question. My mom and dad had made some commitments before my birth that involved branch on the family tree that was going to be different. And it set a trajectory for me and my family and my brothers and my sister, that was radically different from the tree that we were a fork from. My mom never heard that God loved her until she was 17 years old. She was working at Western Union 
She was a high school dropout having to leave school to work to survive. And someone took her aside and said, Betty, has anyone ever told you that God loves you? She said, no. And they opened up a great old King James witnessing Bible and said, for God so loved Betty that he gave his one and only son that if Betty would believe in him, that Betty would have everlasting life. And for the first time in her life experience at 17, she heard and knew that God loved her. She turned to Christ and was saved. And that trajectory that made my family different than our family tree, that trajectory was different. But as I read last night, and I heard the yearning of a, of a little boy speaking to his grandmother because his life was so messed up and things were so difficult. And he said, does God really love us? I began to absorb into my heart what Paul was saying in verse 18 of Philippians 1. Join me there. Because what was happening with Paul is that as the love of God in Christ entered his heart and he came to understand it and acknowledge it and experience it and revel in it, his passion became that no one on this earth would ever have to ask the question, does God love us? And that ought to be the bubbling up passion of our church. That nobody in ball will ever ask the question, does God love us? That nobody in Pineville, nobody in Alexandria, nobody in DeVille, nobody in Grant, that nobody will get up and have to ask the question, does God love us? Because we will have made it plain. In our life and in our words. And that's Paul's passion in verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Oh, that that boy who wrote Hillbilly Elegy could have known with the blocker and grown up in our church. He wouldn't have doubted it. He wouldn't have wondered. Oh, that some of these wonderful parents that are here could have been the one who took this little boy in and explained the gospel as foster parents or adoptive parents. As you read the book, you'll find out that his Last name was changed at least three, maybe four times, trying to find somebody who would be his. And I began to think as I wept in bed and couldn't sleep, 
This is what Paul's talking about. That this gospel is something so glorious and so wonderful. And that our affections and our passions and our commitments have to be settled in this issue. That in Christ, God is lovingly giving the gift of Himself to us that we may have an eternal abiding relationship so chock full of the source of the river of living water who is Christ that we would never have to be a joyless group of people. That's what He's after. And so the joy in our security is a joy that out of our security we're operating in such a way that we want other people to know the joy of being loved by God in Christ and the nature of His love being clear, that His love is perfect and pure and true and real. So much so that He dies for us, but it is all so so holy and so pure that He can only desire our good. You see, our loves get mixed up because our loves often involve what we get in return. But God needs nothing. And so His love can be so pure as to only desire the absolute best for the object of his love, no matter what it costs him, but in keeping with his holiness. And so as we enter today, first off, there is no way I'm going to be able to tell you everything that I've got prepared. Okay? And, and, I, and I wish I could. But I'm not. And I was sitting there just a few minutes ago singing it as well with my soul and thinking I'll never get this sermon done. But but it's because God is just sort of, I feel like a UPS driver who's got a truck full of Christmas stuff and, and four hours to deliver an eight-hour day. All right, Jeffrey, am I right? You know what I'm talking about? I, there's just no way. So let's do it. Let's review. Here we go. Christian joy is related to faith. We connect ourselves, and invest ourselves in what we think will deliver what we're looking for, and that is happiness, joy, contentment. Well, that's what we do. In everything in life, that's how it is. Other than things we are coerced to, this is how we operate. Second, Christian joy is related to fruit. When we find that Christ is our source of joy and we connect ourselves to Him, then we live this John 15 life. If we abide in Him, we bear fruit. And then at the end of that section in John 15, 1 through 8, in the end of that little section, He says, I've told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So it's tied to the fruit of being connected to and abiding in and invested in Christ rather than all of these other things that if fruitless joys. And Christian joy is related to the future, the consummation, the day when what Paul said in Romans 8 and 2 Corinthians 4 and 5 is true. For I consider that the sufferings of this present world are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For light momentary affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. For we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are unseen. Because the things which are seen are temporal, but the unseen things are eternal. 
That's us. That's the church. That's our investment. It's in the future. We have joys now, but our joys will be consummated in the day. Number one, joy is found in a genuine and increasing affection for our loving Savior, Jesus Christ, who gives us security in himself. The whole thing that Paul is after is to know the love of God in Christ. He revels in it in Romans 8. Let's go there for a moment and just hear the words of Romans 8. Just boil up out of Paul's heart where he says in verse 31, go there. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who could be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him freely give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who's the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what Paul is after for you. Because when you know that, you will have joy. You will. He wants that to be worked in, poured in, and brought about in such a way in your heart that it becomes transforming to you. He doesn't want anybody on this earth to have to look at their grandma and say, Mama, does God really love us? And this is the passion of Paul. That everybody knows this. And it knows that it is a redeeming and a refining and a changing love. It is not a love where God is needy so he can overlook sin. It is a a love where we are needy and so he does something about our sin. By in love becoming one of us, taking on flesh and blood, dying for us as a sinner and being raised from the dead. All of this poured out from the eternal fountain who is God through the water who is Christ so that we can drink it in and have joy. This is what he's doing. It's the gospel. And it's why Paul rejoices that somebody could knock on the door of a home where a little boy lives who still doesn't know that there is a God who really deeply and in a way we cannot even explain loves Him. And so we... Look at Ephesians 3. Go there for just a moment. Just a little ways over, kind of back toward Philippians. Philippians. 
just before the place that we're at, here's what Paul's praying for in this knowledge of this love. He says in Ephesians 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth delivers, excuse me, derives its name. And that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in what? In love. That means the thing that will nourish the roots of your soul is that God really does love you. Incomparably. Immeasurably. And when He pours His Son out for you, He is expressing to you something you cannot even comprehend. In fact, I believe that all of eternity will be the amount of time it will take for me and you to find out how much Jesus loves us. I think that's what we'll be busy in heaven about. As every bit of who He is is revealed, which will take all of eternity. Every day you will grow more and more fond of Him because you will realize how much greater He was than you understood the day before. And it will be ceaseless. And it will be immeasurable joy. Infinite joy. Satisfying joy. You will be drinking from this stream of the water of life and eating from the tree of life. And you you will be forever joyful. This is why Paul finishes by saying, And may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled up to the fullness of God. Mm -hmm. Now to him who is able to do. What does he say there? Exceeding abundantly. We don't use that phrase much. Exceeding abundantly. Beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to Him be the glory in the church. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians. Go back to chapter 1 and look. Because he says it this way. After this joy, he says in verse 19, For I know that it shall turn out for my deliverance through your prayers. And the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that I shall not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness Christ shall even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. You see, Paul's affection for Jesus turned into, let's go to number two, it turned into passion. Joy is found in the underlying passion that rises from our affections for and security in Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul was passionate about this spreading of the gospel of the love of God in Christ, the forgiveness of God in Christ, the redemption of God in Christ, the salvation of God in Christ. He was passionate about it because of his affections for Jesus He knew Jesus' love, and he loved Jesus. He was settled that he knew that Jesus loved him. And he was 
He was really so enthralled by it that it became the chief passion of his life. You know what it is to be passionate about things. We do it all the time. You don't have to spend much time in central Louisiana to watch people's passions. Sometimes it's football. Sometimes it's sporting and hunting. Sometimes it's recreation. Sometimes it's shopping. There's so many things. Sometimes it's relationships. There's so many things that we're passionate about. It's easy to pick up when somebody's passionate. You read Joe Dupree's Twitter feed and you can tell he really likes LSU. He's nuts about it. I love reading Joe's feed because as he's giving me play by play, I never have to watch anything. I just follow Joe. Fournette! Whoa! You don't have to to guess. Here's the deal. Nobody had to guess what Paul's passion was. He didn't have to write Philippians for it to be clear. No. But he wrote Philippians so that he could commend it to the church because they were capable of having the same passion that Paul has. You, I, we are able to have such a passion for Jesus because of our affections that we want to exalt Him, whether by life or by death. That means that we have such a joy in Him that we're not afraid to live and we're not afraid to die. This security has settled that. Let's go to number three on the back. Correct it real quick. Just scratch out the first word. I was doing some order changing at the very last minute before I had it printed. And I just left this word hanging there. So uh, it's actually the word that's at the end of number one. I moved one from three and put them in a different order. Joy is found in a rich and growing anticipation that comes from the security found in our relationship with Jesus Christ, our shepherd. There's something that is alive in Paul with anticipation of Jesus' return or Paul's departure. There's something that's like a growing anticipation. The the only thing I can relate it to in my life that's easily explainable is when I first met Sherry. When when we first met back in uh, 1983-84, we were both a little confused about exactly the very first time we ever saw each other. I, I remember it well. I just don't know exactly when it was. But then in 1984, we became friendly with each other and then became interested in each other and then started seeing each other from 1984 all the way until June of 1985, the 29th, when we were married. And I can remember this growing anticipation that the more affection I had for her and the more passion I had out of that, that there was this growing anticipation to see her. I looked forward to every morning seeing her when I got up and we all went down. Uh, I was in a military college. That's where I really belonged. I probably ought to still be in one, but um, I don't think the whole reform thing fully worked. But they, um, the guys marched to breakfast. And um, and then we'd get to see the girls. It's North Georgia College. It's now called North Georgia College and State University. And so Sherry was there in nursing school, and the girls didn't have to be military if they lived on campus, but the guys did. So we'd march to breakfast every morning, and I just looked forward to seeing her. 
And I remember when I'd get out of class, I looked forward to sitting. There was this particular bench. North Georgia College just sits in the middle of a little town called Dahlonega. It's an absolutely gorgeous town. It sits in the foothills of the Appalachian Mountains, down where the Blue Ridge extends down into Georgia there. And it's just beautiful. And so you could sit there and just look at the mountains. And mostly I just looked at Sherry. Uh, I forgot about the mountains. And, and, and there was everyday anticipation. And then when the summer came in, in, in uh, or the breaks came, uh, the summer of 83 and then the summer of 84, we, she was two hours from me. And I could not wait to get off of work on Friday to get in the car and to head north to Tekoa because there was this anticipation. I just wanted to be with her. I just wanted to see her. I wanted to behold her. I wanted... Paul had this for Jesus. And it was growing. It was an anticipation from the security found that Jesus Christ, our good shepherd, is going to, his Savior like a shepherd lead us. He's going to, the, the day we get home, he's going to pick us up and he's going to hold us. And somehow, everything's just going to wash off. And all of our worries and fears and anxieties and weaknesses and longings will be settled. And Paul couldn't wait. How much could he not wait? He says it. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He saw that the moment that he could see and behold and embrace and know and be in the presence of Jesus Christ his Savior, he knew, this is what I'm after. This is it. And so, that's how he lived. He lived, if I'm here, it's labor, it's good. If I go, it's... Better, it's gain. And so there was brewing in him. It goes to number four. Joy is found in the realization that our security means both life and death are truly beneficial. We've talked about this, about the whole funeral thing. We use this as a, as, a, as a word of comfort, a true word of comfort. We all gather around the casket of a family member, a friend, someone dear to us, and we're all standing there. We think about whatever led up to their death, sometimes a period of long-suffering and difficulty, sometimes a tragedy, sometimes an illness. And we stand around and we, 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 we're not always sure exactly what to say, but we always work this one thing in. We say, he or she is in a... We do it. We just do it all the time. We're so accustomed to it that we can just quote it. They're in a better place now. I know I've been to some funerals where they were lying. So, if you got a relative, or if you don't know Jesus and you want me to preach you into heaven, I can't help you. We can't gather up and have some wishful thinking to get somebody somewhere. The Bible says in Hebrews 9, 27, Inasmuch as it is appointed all men once to die, and after this comes the, the judgment. So don't mess with that thing. We can't preach you there. <laughs> and we can't get enough family members around promising a better place for you that will actually make you get there. But when it's true, 
It's a legitimate way to talk to each other. But there's a disconnect. We don't tell each other this as a motivation, only as a comfort. When we're packing our kids up to go on with their lives, are we telling them, give your life to Christ in whatever way that he's called you because dying is gain? And because if you give your life to missions or you give your life to a cause that God has called you to give your life over to and you die from it, I want you to know you'll just be in a better place. There is a disconnect in our comforts and our motivations. We need to start saying it around the crib, not just around the coffin. Moms and dads need to hold hands around the cribs and say, Dear God, you've given us this baby. And we know that if they will follow you, that dying will be gained to them. And they belong to you. So please, God, do not let us hinder them from giving their life to Jesus or for Jesus. We've got to fix the disconnect. Because it's not legitimate to say it at the coffin. If we can't say it about the careers or the cause of Christ. Paul lived this way. He lived it with a realization. What does he say? For me, to me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. How much was that realization affecting him? Well, remember that Paul's in prison and there's a very possible death sentence on him. He's broken a law for proclaiming strange deities in the Roman Empire. Strange deities were those not accepted in the Roman and Greek pantheon or group of gods and goddesses or the monotheism of Israel that was allowed under Rome. Jesus was a different deity in the Roman perspective. Paul's eventual death that we find at the end of 2 Timothy that he's anticipating I'm being poured out as a drink offering actually occurred because Paul had broken this law. He was a proclaimer of strange deities and he lost his life for that because rather than saying Caesar is Lord, he said what? Jesus is Lord. And so Paul said it this way. Look in verse 22 of Philippians 1. But if I'm to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. So he's, he's not saying, I just want to die. This is not some, this is not Paul, like on a really bad day saying, it'd just be better if I was dead. It's not Eeyore showing up on the job going, it'll never work. It's not it. This is Paul saying, death is attractive because of where it takes me. There's a new biography I'm looking forward to reading about Hudson Taylor's life called When Dying is Not Death. (laughs) I love that. Paul, that's Paul. Dying for him wasn't death. It was life. Why? Because the power of death's gone from us. The fear of death has been removed from us. So what does he say here? 
He says in verse 21, 23, but I am hard pressed from both directions. What does that mean? Well, Paul had to pray about his situation. He's in jail. <laughs> he's there. He's in prison. He's locked up, stocked up, chained up. He's there. And, and in that prison, he has to pray. He has to legitimately go to the Lord and say, Lord. And he has to say something about his situation. And Paul said, you know what? I'm going to tell you all the truth. I'm not always praying to get out. Sometimes I'm praying for them to go ahead and kill me. He was a weary laborer in Christ. He had given so much of his life and strength and health. And he longed to be with Jesus. So he said, guys, I, I, I don't want to deceive y'all. I'm hard pressed from both directions. Having the desire. Now, this is where we get the funeral talk. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. That's where we get the word. He's in a better place. Having the desire to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. That leads us to number five. I think I'm going to get it. Well, that was great. <laughs> wow. Okay, here we go. Joy is found in the comprehension of the truth that being in the presence of the one who gives us security is better, very much better than anything and everything else. Listen carefully. You may not be convinced of this, Christian, but I want to tell you something. If you knock off today, you will be better. And it may take you getting knocked off, knocked off and showing up in front of Jesus and go, Hey, Bart was telling the truth. This really is better. I can't go back and tell anybody. If anybody tells you they came back and start telling... Mm. Mm. Okay. So here's the deal. When we get it, our longings will begin to shift. When we're born and in our natural state, the highest drive is self-preservation. When we're supernaturally born again, our highest drive becomes eternal preservation of others to the glory of God. Our, change, our desires change. Paul's desire changed. And here he is comprehending that being in the presence. What does he say? Listen to his words. But I'm hard-pressed. This means that it's not an easy struggle. This is one of those prayers where you're really struggling because you know, he says, if I stay here, I will help people know the joy of Jesus and that is my earthly desire. And I love doing that. That's what Paul's saying. But if I depart, if I depart, Oh, that is very much better. Jesus, to be absent from the body, you know, 2 Corinthians 5, is to be what? Present with the Lord. <laughs> this is glorious. This, this, is, this, is what he's, this is what he's wrestling with. He's torn. When I was a kid, I've told you this story before, but the story's making more sense to me in the context of the studies of the last couple of months. But when I was a kid, I had these recurring nightmares. When I was somewhere between four and six years old, I had this series of recurring nightmares. They were horrid. I would 
I would hate to go to sleep because of them, because what would happen is I would I would fall asleep. And in the nightmare, there was this sort of alligator dragon Satan mix creature. Now, this was before freaky cartoons, so I didn't pick it up on TV. You watch TV today, you should have nightmares. <laughs> um, especially like Cartoon Network. Man, you dream one of those cartoons and you're out there. And this thing would capture me. And it, it, it was always dragonish, alligatorish. And then I moved to Louisiana. That's just weird. Uh, and and Satanish. And and it would just do one thing. It would only do one thing. It would cover my mouth. That was its only thing it ever did to me. Because it, in my dream. If it covered my mouth, I could not call on the one who loved me, who could rescue me. And that was my dad. And so I can still vividly remember, and I hope I don't start having these again by talking about it. I can vividly remember this thing just covered my mouth. And I couldn't say anything. But in my dream, I knew that if I could call out... That somebody would come and rescue me who loves me. And I found out that the whole time that's been a parable of the work of Satan against the gospel. Everything that Satan ever wants to do is just stop us from calling on Jesus. And he shuts our mouth in a thousand ways. With false pleasures and false joys. But I'm there And I'm covered in my mouth and I can't call out and it's the most horrid thing. And finally, as I struggle and as I struggle and as I struggle, y'all get ready to cover your ears because this is what would happen. As soon as I wake up, here you go, cover your ears. I would go, ah, and literally like that. To this day, we lived in a two-story house. We had all wood floors. I can still hear my dad's footsteps. Listen, I can hear my dad's footsteps. As I'm yelling, I can hear the footsteps. That's all I want to hear. And he's coming toward me. And I'm laying there screaming. And I can still remember him scooping me up. My dad was a big man. I didn't get his genetics. And he was 6'2", 225, and he scooped me up. And he'd start walking down the hall. And we would sit down in a rocking chair. And he'd start to rock and he'd start singing this crazy song. A ram, Sam, Sam, a ram, Sam, Sam, gooly, 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 ram, Sam, Sam. Does anybody even know that song? It's nuts! But I heard it through his chest with my ear against it. And all I needed was the presence of my deliverer. Listen, some of you are in a nightmare today. Your life feels like a bad stinking dream. But I want to tell you something. If you will call on Jesus, you will hear the earth move with the footsteps of the one who stepped out of heaven and came to this earth, walked sinlessly, died sacrificially, raised victoriously, reigned supremely, and He will come after you. And He will scoop you up And pull you to his chest. And he will sing some kind of song. 
Sometimes it's amazing grace. Sometimes it's it's well with my soul. Sometimes it's John 3.16. I don't know what it will be for you. But as the words of Christ flow out of who He is into who you are, you will melt in His arms and you will be secure. And you'll wait until He can physically do that for all of eternity. That's the gospel. And that's the joy He wants you to know. Paul says it. But I'm hard pressed. From both directions. Having the desire to depart. And be with Christ. For that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Why? What's he say after that? He says, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy. What Paul was saying is, I'm going to live on earth for your joy and I'm going to die and be in heaven for my joy. It's joy all the way around. We were talking about it Wednesday night and Miss Faye Spencer said, it's just win-win to live as Christ. I want you to think for just a minute that there are still little boys and little girls on a globe full of 7 billion people who get up. And they may not have a grandma to ask, but the question's in their heart. Does God love us? And every one of us ought to be beating our way out these doors to fill the restaurants today to make the waiters and waitresses know, you know what? God loves you. And I want to tell you about it. Our neighbors, our friends, our co-workers, they need to know. But I want you to know first. Because it'll be no good for you to try to sell something you don't believe. To try to tell something you don't hold in your heart. To try to share something that you do not personally possess. Do you rest today in the love of Jesus? Would you bow with me? It is possible you came in here today and you're in the nightmare. And you're ready to cry out for a Savior. And I want to tell you, He he came to seek and save the lost He came to rescue the perishing. And so I want to encourage you right now to turn your heart to Jesus Christ. No one could ever love you more than God has loved you and will love you in Jesus Christ. He will wash away your sins if you will repent of this craziness that you think is okay in your sinful life, of trying to find joy in all these crazy places, and it just never really works out. And know that God wants to give you joy and wash away your sins and forgive you. Right now, would you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus Christ? Pray with me. God, this is me been looking for joy in all the wrong places. But I believe you are the source of, of eternal joy and Jesus is the joy. And so now, 
I repent of trying to find that joy in so many sinful desires and pleasures, wantonly ignoring you. And I turn to you for my joy. I believe that Jesus died for my sins to bring me joy. I believe He was raised from the dead to secure my joy. I believe He reigns at your right hand to assure my joy. And so now, I'll follow Jesus. Some of you are here and you are already believers. But something's been just draining your joy. Maybe it's a sin you will not repent of. Or a cistern you've built, some place you think you're going to get your joy. And it just keeps running dry and you're kind of angry and bitter. And there's a lot of malice and wrath going on in your life because of it. I want to ask you, be refreshed today. Pray this one line with me that David prayed. Oh God, restore to me the joy of my salvation. Pray that with me now. Let's pray it together. Oh God, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. However God's working in your heart, would you stand?